Hey there, Back Channel Radio listeners. It's me, Suzanne Hogan. So this is the last episode of a Wolf Spider Island story, but I just want to say stay tuned to this feed because we do have some more bonus stuff that's going to be coming your way. And our plan is that this is hopefully just the beginning of the types of stories from beyond the mainstream that we're going to be preserving and sharing on this podcast. But we just need a little time to figure out the next move. If you're here for the first time, stop right now and go back to episode one because this story is meant to be heard in order. And if you've been with us the entire journey and enjoying this story, the best thing you can do to support us is to tell more people about this podcast. Word of mouth or on social. Our Instagram is at Back Channel Radio. Good ratings are also really helpful. And if you have some money you want to throw our way, we'll happily accept donations at any amount at backchannelradio.org. A special thanks to the Minnesota Marine Art Museum in Winona, Minnesota, home to a six-gallery museum and education center, and that's delicately restoring a five-acre prairie garden. Learn more about exhibits and events at mmam.org. This is Back Channel Radio, a Wolf Spider Island story. Stories from Beyond the Mainstream. I'm Gina Favano. Last episode, you met our friend Tira Falk, a longtime resident and woodworker who was a mainstay of the first wave of Wolf Spider Islanders. I think everybody loves the water, don't mm-hmm. you? Oh, really? yes. <laughs> and Moses Simon, my friend who was born here on the island. It's important to try to, to help people, and I think that's what the boathouses is about. So hopefully by now we've given you a sense of the kind of people who have called this place home over the years. People like my partner, Gertie Tonjum. Well, the first time I ever walked on one of these places that it just felt different than living on land. Like I, I always say that it, I finally felt grounded, which is kind of weird to think of water being grounding, but it is an unofficial Latch Island historian, John Rupke. I certainly wasn't into counterculture when I was a brother. Okay, so that's 44 years and uh, living in monasteries and teaching in conservative Catholic schools. But um, when I left and came into the boathouse, it was, my being gay was not a problem in the counterculture, which was, wow, that's, that was a huge thing. This, the final episode of A Wolf Spider Island Story, we're calling Stay Afloat. As I mentioned in the last episode, Stay Afloat has become sort of a catchphrase in the DIY river subculture. So what does that mean, to stay afloat? Probably something a little different to everyone. For me, it has to do with staying true to yourself, to your vision. And for a place like Latch Island, maybe it also has to do a little with the nostalgia for a thing you can still see, but that's changing before your eyes. We talked about this a bit as I was wrapping up my interview with Moses. Anything anything else you want to add that we didn't cover? Uh, I guess I just want to talk a little bit about the next generation, you know. Moses is now a dad to two young children. He spent the earliest part of his childhood on the island and has fond memories of formative years he had there. He has hopes for his own sons to get to have similar experiences, ones that involve environmental stewardship and nature on a direct level. I'm really excited for Judah to... To learn those things, you know, he, I love taking him out boating, I like swimming on the beaches here. It's cool to have him be able to learn about the world through this lens. And uh, So you think it's important? You think it's a, a valuable? Yeah, I think it's, it, it just uh, brings a viewpoint that uh, living in a town in a house doesn't, you don't have, 
you know, he knows <clears throat> about the ducks, you know, yeah. talks about the fish, sees the eagles. Because I think a lot about, like, living in nature and how I don't, I don't believe that, like, um, homesteading is the answer to um, saving, like, you know, the ecological genocide that's happening because, you know, then you actually, you're, you're, you're infringing upon nature by doing that. But, um, but I think what happens when you do live intentionally in nature is it changes your mindset and that, that becomes like contagious, you know, it's like a change of consciousness that's happening. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like important for everybody to experience that, to at least experience it. Like it's not, I don't think it's sustainable for everyone to live that way. But to maybe you visit for a few days and get to see it, you know? I think sometimes what I find on the island is that the humans here aren't the main focus. You know, in a city, humans are there. In the world, in social media, it's humans, humans, humans. But down here, we're here, but uh, we're just part of it. And so I think that's a valuable lesson that can be learned on the island is just, uh, especially down here on this part of the island, is that, you know, we're just one cog in the machine. As we've touched on in other episodes, a lot of the culture on the island's been slowly changing over the decades. Most of the boathouses at this point are used only for recreation, a place to visit on the occasional weekend getaway. But there is another small group of people who still encapsulate the original ethos and are keeping the torch going. Like my friend Jake Telsho, who co-owns a boathouse on the island, we talked a bit about it on a windy autumn day sitting around a fire. I don't know, as someone who like kind of who considers myself like a river rat, like this is the epitome of like where you end up, <laughs> you know, like which I feel like is that's why like my partner and like why Gertie and like a bunch of us are kind of here is, is we're in love with the river and that like river rat culture and God reading so many books over the years and like this is it this is like this is like the end all be all place to be at and like a lot of these different like river communities of boathouses or house houseboats don't really exist anymore so it's like it's a dying breed not all the people who have boathouses on latch nowadays would probably identify with the river rat sentiment jake expresses here but few would disagree that the Latch Island boathouses are historically important to document, being the Mississippi River's only year-round boathouse community. Especially as less and less people continue to live here year-round, and the long arm of gentrification continues its reach. But beyond that, how important is it to preserve this way of life? New generations of river rats are still drawn to this place, and probably always will be, for as long as some semblance of the boathouses remain. It's just whether or not they'll be able to afford it or whether the environment that has made this place so unique will still be hospitable. Here's Reggie McLeod again, the local journalist we first learned about way back in episode one. I think people in Winona have always appreciated the fact that the boathouse community is, is unique in the true sense of the word, that there isn't another boathouse community. So uh, that gives it a certain value and importance. With all the changes facing Latch Island, like shifting demographics, people getting older, ecological changes. I asked Reggie if he thought it was important that this way of life get preserved. I don't know. I'm not going to weigh in on that. I haven't really thought about it that much. It's happening in so many places. You know, you have pristine lakes up north that people are just dying to build big cabins right on the edge of. And, uh, and you have families have a hard time affording 
even a small house now or even finding one, you know, there's, it's, it's a bigger problem than Latch Island is what I'm saying. It's, it's a problem that's not unique to Latch Island. A lot of neighborhoods are going through that now in this country. And I don't know how, how that should be addressed. I'd like to see the culture preserved in Latch Island, but you know, a lot of cultural resources and some of the groups in Winona that were kind of creative and interesting have kind of gone away. And it's not that the people, some of the people have moved away and some of the people have just gotten old enough where they're working full time and they have families and, and they've changed their lifestyle. So, and I have, you know, too, as well. So, so I don't really know how to address that, Gina, because I don't really understand it enough to have an opinion, I guess, you know. Then I asked him about his feelings around the boathouses on Latch, how they might have affected him on a personal level. It's so interwoven kind of in my life. It's just become a part of my life. Reggie McLeod covered the conflict the boathouse residents had to wage back in the 80s and 90s in order to keep from being pushed out. Now he's the editor-in-chief for Big River Magazine, which covers all topics related to the Mississippi. But back then, he was able to write about the Latch Island boathouses from a personal viewpoint, informed by the amount of time he spent there in the early days not just as a reporter, but as a person. House-sitting mostly, he recalls the quiet solitude of the coldest months, when most vacationers wouldn't even consider visiting. It was like being on a different planet, especially if you're by yourself. You know, you're out there and, and you hear those uh, seams in the ice that that when the sun comes up in the morning or when it gets cold at night, they yeah. all those noises. The sounds he's referring to are the loud, jarring noises the ice makes as it settles and thaws. Sudden cracks, and also these weird, high-pitched whirring sounds, almost like whale song. His time spent in boathouses, especially in the winter, were reminiscent of a deeper childhood memory of time spent at his grandparents' home in a house that also didn't have central heat or plumbing. I always kind of liked Living like that, there was always an attraction to that. My grandparents lived that way in Appalachia, in eastern Kentucky, too, and I always loved being down there. So it's a way to be closer to nature, to hear things, not to be so cocooned in the media and automatic things that happen with the water and the heat and the lights and everything. You know, I mean, I, I, I like that. It's, it's more real in a sense. You know, you're more connected to the world, really. And I find that uh, pleasurable. Spaces like these where people can find themselves or heal themselves or just be themselves are always going to be important. For me, preserving the stories from the subcultures that manage to find a foothold is almost as important as the places themselves. In the DIY and punk scene that I came up in, there's always been this code of don't blow up the spot. What we do is secret. For a while, I had doubts about making this podcast, that by adding to the public knowledge of the Latch Island boathouses, I could be contributing to its changing. And then I realized the place is changing with or without me, and these stories were in danger of being lost. It's hard to predict what will happen here down the line. It's something my partner Gertie thinks about a lot. What do you think lies in store for the future of the island? And... um what do you hope the future of the island is? And are those two, do they line up or are they in conflict with one another? I don't really know what what it will end up as, but my hope for it is that more people 
want to live there. That's the difference between having a community, like a tight-knit community that relies on each other, and just having like a weekend um, vacation spot, which is fine too, but it's a completely different thing. And my hope is that people have more of an investment in that place and the future of it. Do you think that's going to come true? I'm cautiously optimistic because there's a lot of people that are wanting to live alternative life and lives and uh, and pare down their life and simplify in some ways. So I think it's kind of difficult now because places are going for more money. So it narrows down who can afford them and who it pushes out. And you know what I mean? It, it just creates a little harder environment for that. But I am cautiously optimistic that that, that can happen. It's a niche market, but I really think it's such a magical place that um, I think those two th entities can come together, if that makes any sense. I asked John Rupke a similar question. And you noticed that the people who come here who have a lot of money tend not to be part of our culture. For them, this is just a place to uh, come and party a few times a year. I think it would be nice if the radical strain of the subculture remained, because I think that's a very positive force in Winona society to have that. And uh, I think it would be great if it if that strain continued. I think if the got strain got lost, uh, the, the Winona society. Winona culture would lose something, even though they don't necessarily see it that way. It was the possibility of that strain of radical culture being lost to the island's history that spurred me to record these stories. The change John's talking about is happening everywhere, but that hasn't stopped him from continuing to do his part to keep it alive the best way he knows how. I'm that gay guy that lives in a boathouse who keeps writing radical letters to the people of Winona. That's the advantage of being poor is... You can say what you want to say. It's, it's the old, old saying, uh, freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. John and some of the other senior boathousers over the years occasionally referenced a different floating home community, this one called Sausalito in California's Marin County. It had originally been a place where many abandoned boats and materials were left behind after the decommissioning of the Marin shipyards at the end of World War II, and they were repurposed by hippies in the 60s and 70s who made them into floating homes. Over time, people with money started to uh, get into these places and started to build more conventional, more functional, more totally, and took, kind of took over the whole Salcedo scene. After a series of tense confrontations with authorities in the 70s and 80s, the large community in Salcedo eventually became more regulated. Today, only the very wealthy can afford to live there, with most of the houseboats being sold for between $1 and $3 million. And we said, well, we don't want to let that happen here we, uh, because uh, we, we're different. We want to stay the way 
Sausalito was originally, and that's the way we want to stay too. But you know what we didn't realize is this is all part of evolution. Is this is this is not the way things evolve. Things evolve differently, and you see what's going on right here. Especially once we became legal, and the city accepted us, and we came to terms with the DNR. I can remember going before the city council, and the mayor said, "Gee, if we make you guys legal and blah blah blah, you guys, your your homes are going to increase rapidly in value." And we said, "Well, that's we don't want that." But of course, the mayor knew exactly what was going to happen. Do you think it is a problem now? Do you think your fears came true? I don't think so. I think it's maintained a reasonable situation. You know,、um, one of the things that's different, a big thing that's different now than it was when I first moved here, is it's very difficult for a poor person to get a place to live. We've evolved to the point where it's very difficult for poor people to.、Uh, Move on. Yeah, move here. We're talking about continuous evolution, and you can't fight it. It's life. It's reality. That's reality. What's not reality is this is the way things are, and this is the way things are always going to be. And that's what you're taught when you're in a religion. This is this is what's right. This is what's wrong. It's this way now. It's going to be this way forever. You know, there's no such thing as evolution and new understanding. The future of the island has always been uncertain, from its history of trouble with bureaucracy to taciturn flood seasons and barge traffic that erodes the sand away over time. That's echoed in the boathouses themselves, how they move and shift over the water. This current era of uncertainty feels a little different, though. More tied into climate change and gentrification, and the housing insecurity being experienced on a national level. Capitalism, essentially. Chances are they'll continue to be boathouses here down the line. But what will they look like, and who will own them? How often will they get used? For Leslie Eaton, the UFO enthusiast singer-songwriter we heard from back in episode four, it's a pressure she's been aware of here on Wolf Spider even back in the early days. I guess it was just because it was so such a controversy because、um, they fought us so hard. I mean, all of every government agency that existed, you know, tried to get us out of here and.、Uh, You know, finally we end up with that compromise, and then you know, rich, respectable people started coming down. I really didn't want that to happen, but at least down here, I mean, you guys are still here. There's still some of the original kind of, you know, spirit. Yeah.、Uh, but yeah,、uh, man. I think it helps with the longevity of the place, so、uh-huh. to have all different types of people. Yeah, it does.、But. Not only that, it made it more secure in a way. They quit、mm-hmm. fighting or you know, being here. So when I first embarked on this journey of documentation, there was no real comprehensive history of the Latch Island boathouses. Nothing that explored the culture that founded this community and how that overlapped with the legal sanctioning of the community that I found in existence outside of John's work, online or anywhere else. John always saw the value and importance of keeping track of this stuff, even all those years ago. His consistency was unwavering, obsessive even. As was his unfaltering recording of the water levels of each month throughout the years, which he marked on hand-drawn charts that were then kept chronologically in huge binders. This was especially important for the islanders to keep track of, being in the pre-cell phone and weather app era. 
He would measure the depth of the water near his floating home, which was always changing, and in the winter he would measure the ice. Can you describe your process for making this chart? So that was for, that's on the island, on the, uh, and it showed that measured the height of the river. So I would go out and read that every day. So every day you would go out, measure the depth, then come back in and make a dot on that graph? Exactly. Make a dot on the graph. And this is, this is before you could get it off the internet. You know, once, now they get off the internet, you, you know, look at their graph, I don't bother. But uh, yeah, I would go out and measure every day. Look at that, man, that's a big jump in one day. Charts like this one look like a dotted constellation, a mosaic of hydrological shifts on white paper with blue curves and a key in the margin to help you see the shifts from day to day. Additionally, he kept records of the local fauna, how many eagles he saw from one year to the next. Did he notice any foxes on the island? What did they seem to be eating? In the years that I have been here, which are short compared to John's, I have noticed changes in our surroundings. The bi-yearly floods, which used to be predictable, now come suddenly, or sometimes not at all. The ice takes longer to form and melts more easily. Huge cottonwood trees that help keep the smaller islands from washing away topple over after too many weeks in standing water. There's been decreases in the local bat population. In a land of such pristine water and wilderness, it's humbling to notice the effects of environmental catastrophe. And the island is literally shrinking due to erosion caused by the barge traffic on the main channel, an issue that no authority has yet to address. John's kept records and timelines of everything, including his own life, separate from his life here on the island. They're part scrapbook, part photo album, part hand-drawn graphs and charts. Yeah, this is something I put together in, is it dated? Here, we're looking at one graph in particular that he called his theory of development, a somewhat cryptic looking document that starts at his birth and continues on into old age. I've got 70 up here, and it was like, oh, well, that's about the end of it, you know, <laughs> 70, I just added 80, <laughs> 88 at the very end. <laughs> I told my brother if I'm still alive at 88, my friends will probably put me out of my misery. Well, that's only like two years from now, right? Uh. <laughs> I originally started interviewing John around 2018. In recent months, I wondered a lot what John would think of the podcast once it was done, but I never had the chance to play the finished version for him. Dr. John Thomas Rupke passed away on July 6th, 2022, at the age of 87. He didn't die on the river as he had hoped he would, but in a facility nearby after a sudden and short decline. Gertie and I tried to keep him on the island for as long as we could, even boating over to his place a lot in the middle of the night, but in the end, it wasn't a safe situation for anyone. There was a tiny group of us from his life on the island who visited him, advocated for him at his doctor's appointments, held his hand, it was imperfect, it was stressful at times, it was confusing and exhausting the way these situations always are, but it was also a time of concentrated sweetness, of saying, I love you, a lot. I spent the week before he left the island with him. I was the one who helped him pack his bag and boated him away off the island for the last time. I watched him, his eyes lingering over the boathouses as we went past, 
the faintest smile on his face, taking in the view he had been living with every day for over 40 years. It was watching someone take stock of their life, not knowing if they'd ever return to the place they didn't want to leave. It was an unorthodox way to become close to someone through the course of interviewing them 22 times. And in our society, there isn't much of a paradigm in place to care for elder people who we aren't directly related to. But it's not so unusual in the gay community, where the precedence of chosen family exists. In the days and weeks that have passed since then, I've had a profound sense of relief that his story was recorded when it was, and that he acquiesced to being interviewed when he did. But on the island, especially when I boat by his little red floating home that sits patiently in the dark, during those times, I just really miss my friend. What do you expect is going to happen after you die? I, I was going to ask you that today, yeah. actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, my fantasy always was, you know, somewhere in St. Paul says, what's prepared for you after your death is beyond your imagination. It's so wonderful. I don't even get the exact quote, but that was the idea that it was so, what God has prepared for us is beyond your imagination. I always imagined this, I'd end up at the pearly gates and there would be God and there would be Jesus and uh, Jesus would say, well, congratulations for getting beyond Roman Catholicism and we've got something planned that's beyond your imagination, but we're going to start with your imagination. So what's your imagination and whatever your imagination is, we're gonna, you can do that. And then we're going to go beyond that. Well, my well, a lot of my my imagination was, I'd like to relive parts of my life knowing what I know now. Oh, okay, well, I'm all powerful. I can do everything. I I, I created the universe in a, with a word. I can definitely do that. And uh, so, um, so what's the first part you would like to relive? And a lot of the parts that I would like to relive were when I was with guys who we were both really attracted to each other but we were both afraid to do anything you know uh, and um, to express that to each other and I said well I'd like to go back and you know relive some of those. In his will John left his files and archives about the island in my care. Next to them on a shelf in his boathouse was a cassette tape. Hi John. This is Norm talking to you from early morning on the winter solstice. It was an audio letter from his partner, Norm. John talked about Norm back in episode two of their life together on the island before Norm passed away in 1985. This recording was from a winter he spent away from the island during the holidays. It was a time capsule. First of all, I want to say thanks an awful lot, John, for the letter and the photographs. When I saw my house in the snow, I felt sad that I wasn't there to see it, but very, very happy to be able to see it, how it looks right now. I miss the neighborhood in the wintertime. that I'll be here through February and uh, be back up there in early March. Definitely in time for the spring equinox <laughs> and in time for the uh, surfing championship, I hope. 
That's my goal. John, it sounds like you went through a really challenging time getting set up there in November. But I imagine by now you're quite comfortable. Did you get enough firewood, and where did you get firewood from? And uh, what about that big tree that was stuck underneath your house? Is that still there? He goes on to talk about cookies he's planning on making and things that he's doing in the Southwest while he's away. And then he gets back to the long list of questions about how neighbors and friends are doing and wanting to make sure John tells them all hello. People like their longtime neighbor Chris and Digital Don. I wish I could uh, be two places at once. Because I'm very happy being here too. But the second best thing to being two places at once is to be both places at least sometime. <laughs> so I feel very happy that I can be here for a while too. He extends his holiday greetings to lots of other islanders one by one, to everybody involved with the Renaissance Fair, the Celestial Circus, and... And the Santa Claus, of course. And John, I miss, miss you very much too. It's, uh, it's been different not having you to talk with. Couldn't be around, but, um, Hope you have a very nice Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Maybe I'll try this again sometime. See, see what you think of this letter. Tell me if I could have written it better in one, on one page. Take care. Miss y'all. Thanks for everything, John. Thanks for taking care of my things. Goodbye. Till later, love Norm. John crafted his obituary a lot in the years preceding his death, and every now and then he'd pull it out to get my opinion on a little detail he was tweaking. It started with a bang. It goes, Dr. John Thomas Rupke was born gay. John saved what seemed to be most, if not all, of the letters he wrote that were published locally chronologically in binders, even the ones under the pseudonym he had for a while when the papers were refusing to publish him. He had been writing them since 1979, so 43 years at the time of his death. I lost track after counting 200 letters in his files, 10 of which were under his nom de plume, Andy Davidson. His first few were, in his own words, long, tedious, and academic. Even in his catalogs of letters, everything is displayed as though just waiting to be seen by another set of eyes. Some of the early letters are overlaid with handwritten instructions that literally say, skip this one, and blah, blah, blah. But his style evolved to become bulletproof over time, concise and to the point. The topics he covered included gay marriage, local politics, abortion rights, biblical misinterpretation, including the teachings of Jesus, and in later years, Trumpism and its ensuing xenophobia, and always a steadfast critique of some modern religious institutions continuing to teach homophobia to gay kids, and, well, all kids. 
Do you feel like living in this place has has contributed to your general like health and well-being and yeah, longevity? Yeah, oh definitely. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, 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 I think if I wasn't living here, <laughs> that's a one. What happened? What would happen if I had left? Hadn't left the brothers? So I was forty-four, and I would say, oh, oh, I'm too old to um, leave the brothers. I don't know. I what would I be doing? Oh my gosh! I, it's <laughs> Uh, you, what I was supposed to be doing would be meditating every day, going to mass, going, doing all the yeah. uh, Catholic rituals. Yeah. You not, know, not writing letters about gay rights. You, oh no, yeah, you're just shutting <laughs> shutting up about that. And uh, I, you know, um, obviously, it's like a different lifetime. It's hard to say. You know, um, you could say that when I was. 44, I threw it all away. I, I turned my back on everything and uh, moved to a wilderness island living in a boat. That, that worked for me. I had known for a while that after John died, I was going to write my own letter to the Winona Post in memoriam, an homage to all those years of contributions. I knew that I was going to print out a hard copy and hand deliver it to their office, just like he had always done. Here's my letter, written in his stead. On July 6th, Winona lost an important voice. John Rupke left this earthly plane at age 87. You may have seen his obituary in this very paper. In addition to his other achievements throughout his life, John spent 43 years contributing to the fabric of Winona's spirited discourse in the form of writing anti-oppression-themed letters to the local newspapers. He once told me that he felt like a lone voice in the wilderness when it came to his letters, which he started writing all the way back in 1979, when he first moved into a boathouse on Latch Island. But that in recent years, he started to feel like the culture had caught up to his once radical notions. John saved all of his published letters, and if he ever wrote in a published response to one of his commentaries, whether in support or opposition, well, he saved that too. Here's an excerpt of one angry retort published in the Winona Post in 1982. I was outraged by the November 10th letter of John Rupke. He is guilty of gross heresy and defamation of the name of Jesus. Rupke is making an all-out effort to combine Christianity and a homosexual lifestyle. It's like trying to mix oil and water. Holiness and abomination don't mix. For some context, it was around this time that the Minnesota Council of Churches had issued a statement saying their organization should welcome gays and lesbians into their congregations and to support legislation that protects their rights. And John had submitted a letter that applauded it. The outraged author mentioned above referenced this new direction as, quote, a grave mistake and a sign of the end times. Thankfully, although the fight for equality is far from over, today it's much more commonplace for people of all gender and sexual orientations to worship however they wish, if they choose to at all. How important those missives were during the time the conservative status quo largely maintained an opposing viewpoint, especially during the Reagan administration, when John's own partner was dying of AIDS. John didn't shy away from conversational conflict. He was able to engage and debate with others who held beliefs that were different from his own, a skill that's hard to come by in the starkly divided political climate we have today. Winona may have lost John's voice, but his spirit lives on in the minds and actions of young people who have access to mediums other than hard copy letter writing and who work every day to help create a world that's worth living in. And in the hearts of those who knew him, 
and whose lives are impacted by him still. How fortunate the city of Winona was to have had this important voice in the community for the last 43 years, that of a gay elder who lived through the time of the Lavender Scare and the first wave of the AIDS epidemic. How fortunate was I to have had him as my friend. May we all be so moved to call out injustice wherever we see it. Gina Favano, Wolf Spider Island, September 15th, 2022. I don't know if I'll always live here on the island in a boathouse. Probably not. But I do know this place will always be special to me because of its uniqueness, but mostly because of the people that have called it home. It will always be important to have places like Wolf Spider Island where people who feel like outsiders can gather on the back channel, literally and metaphorically. Ultimately, these places represent the sanctity of wildness and acceptance and love. Back Channel Radio is researched and written by me, Gina Favano, and edited and mixed by producer Suzanne Hogan. Grace Ambrose designed our website, backchannelradio.org, where you can find photos and bonus material. That's also where you can donate to this ongoing project. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions and Come Holy Spirit. Special thanks this episode goes to Gertie Tonjam, Moses Simon, Reggie McLeod, Jake Telshow, and Leslie Eaton. Thanks always to the original Wolf Spider Islanders and everyone who loves this place. This episode is dedicated to the memories of John Rupke, Norma Chayas, and Tira Falk. Thanks to the Southeastern Minnesota Arts Council, Carrie Johnson at the Winona County Historical Society, the John Latch Board, the Awesome Foundation, individual donors on Patreon, and to all of our listeners. Back Channel Radio podcast episodes and bonus content are made possible in part by support from the Minnesota Marine Art Museum, a place engaging visitors in meaningful experiences that explore our ongoing and historic relationship with water. Located in Winona, Minnesota, learn more at mmam.org. Until next time, stay afloat. Thank you.